If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. If I asked you to name notable campaigns from the Hundred Years' War, you might point to England's victory at Cressy or Henry V's success at Agincourt. But in his latest historical fiction novel, Wolves of Winter, Dan Jones has turned his attention to a less well-known but fascinating campaign, the Siege of Calais. I spoke to him to hear more about the epic struggle for the city and to find out why, when the French nobles eventually surrendered, they decided to leave already wearing nooses around their necks. Before we delve into the Siege of Calais, which is the focus of your new novel, Wolves of Winter, can you quickly give us some context and share what's happened in the Hundred Years' War so far? Well, the Hundred Years' War doesn't really deserve its name very much. The book I've just written is set in 1346-7. to It starts in 46 and ends in 47. By this stage, the Hundred Years' War, at, at the best count, has only been going for nine and ten years. This is a war declared by King Edward III of England on the realm of France, so his, his Valois cousin, Philip VI. Edward III's ostensible claim is that he ought, in fact, to be the rightful king of France himself. He has a, a loose claim in genealogy. There are a whole host of plausible other reasons why England might want to fight against France at this point, but that's, that's where we're at. We're at the early stages of a conflict that will run for considerably more than a hundred years in the end. But I don't think anybody at this point can really believe that might be so. So what's happened in the campaign so far then? The Cressy campaign leads into the Siege of Calais almost seamlessly. So on Wednesday, July the 12th, 1346, Edward III landed an army which chroniclers put out about 15,000 fighting men on the Normandy beaches. So those beaches that listeners will, will maybe be more familiar with from stories of the Second World War, of D-Day, you know. So Edward III lands his army quite near what we now know as Utah Beach from the 1944 D-Day landings. Those troops embark upon a about a seven-week campaign which takes them out of Normandy uh, along the southern bank of the River Seine, burning, looting, destroying almost everything in their path to begin with. They manage to cross the Seine and then end up in a foot race against an army belatedly summoned by Philip VI of France, which ends when the two armies collide near the forest of Cressy and there is a big battle. And the book I've written about the Siege of Calais picks up the day after that battle. We're very familiar in relative terms, if we know, if listeners know anything about the Hundred Years' War and, and Edward III's part in it, you probably are quite familiar with the Cressy campaign because this is the Black Prince earning his spurs and it's the sort of the miracle of Cressy and the crossing of the rivers and so on and so forth. What's much less well known is this long coda to the Cressy campaign, which is the same army, just picks up the day after the battle and carries on. And there is another 11 months to go because the army marches off to the the coast of France, the nearest point to England, and besieges the city of Calais with the hope of taking it into English hands. And why do you think this episode is less well known? 
because it's less picturesque. There's one bit of the Siege of Calais that is relatively well known, and that's the emergence from Calais at the end of the siege of six burghers, wealthy citizens of Calais, who emerge starving and bedraggled to plead their case with Edward III. So that that's the sort of tableau moment in this uh, scene. Whereas the Cressy campaign that preceded it had lots of tableau moments. There's the, there is the landing on the beaches, and then there's Edward III falling over and getting a nosebleed and saying, look, you see, the land wants me. Then there's the knighting of the Black Prince. There's the crossing of the rivers. There's the battle itself. And Edward's challenged his son to win his spurs, supposedly. That's all quite picturesque and picture book, and we can we can neatly imagine that, particularly given the the sort of the romantic tropes that have built up around medieval warfare over the years. When you get into an eleven month medieval siege like Calais, there's an awful lot of it which appears in even reading the most exciting history of it to be just people sitting around waiting for one side to starve or die of disease. And so it's not quite so visually arresting in our kind of historical imagination. And yet, for me, I think this is equally, if not more, historically interesting and exciting than the Cressy campaign that preceded it, because it's a, a war of incredible invention, appalling attrition, and really remarkable forbearance on the part of of the people of Calais, led by the burghers who, who are trying to resist the English. And there are also lots of bits of this episode of the war that are unknown, you know, even before I start, well, before I started writing about it, I had no idea that a, there was a big part played in the Siege of Calais by pirates. You know, there, there were a gang of pirates from Boulogne, famous gang of pirates who ran a sort of Berlin airlift style operation into Calais to keep the city supplied. And it's the most extraordinary story, uh, but it's just not that well known. And we'll come on to pirates later. But for now, I'd like to think about this moment post-Crecy. Is the road to Calais inevitable? Is it the only logical step that Edward III can take? Or could he have just gone back to England at this point? Well, there's an argument to say that's exactly what he's trying to do. The mind of Edward III's in this whole campaign, ranging right from the summer of 46 to the late summer of 47, is somewhat of a mystery, and different historians have really quite different perspectives on what Edward III is trying to achieve in this campaign at all. I mean, there are the one extreme end of interpretations, one could say he actually does have designs on going to Paris and taking the Philip VI crown for himself. The other is he's just there to cause as much trouble as possible, create a diversion from a second uh, English theatre of campaigns in the south of France, and then scuttle back with whatever he's managed to plunder. Uh, I think the truth lies somewhere between those extremes. And I think that Edward probably changes his mind somewhat along the way. I think in the moment after Crecy and the, the rather miraculous victory for the English there, Edward does have a series of choices to make. Philip VI has been crushed on the battlefield. That implies a judgment of God. He's lost a huge number of knights, so many that it's going to be very difficult to put together a competent and dangerous and potent French army in the aftermath of this battle, is he weak enough for Edward now to consider heading off to Paris and actually trying to see through his claim to the French throne? I think no is the, is the obvious answer to that. The English uh, have, 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 had won a battle, but had been severely depleted by the ordeals of the march. And so getting back to England to kind of to recover, restore, and, and probably to come again is uppermost in their minds. That being said... If they go back, if they just simply go back to England and that's that, what have they to show for a really vast expense? The war, although only 10-ish years old, has consumed a huge amount of English money, some of which has been granted by 
Parliament, some of which has been loaned by merchants, some of which have been loaned by Italian banks, and and it's required a huge amount of political capital of, from Edward at an early point in his reign where he doesn't actually have that much of it. So there needs to be something tangible gained. And I think that choosing Calais uh, strikes a balance between thing that might just be achievable, given that you think God is on your side after Crecy, and thing that if it all goes wrong means you can still just get back to England as soon as possible because as as we know uh, or as I think a lot of, of British and French listeners will know Calais and, and Dover is the closest point between our uh, the two realms so but, but there are problems uh, with, with taking Calais which we can discuss if you like definitely I mean you've mentioned that the English army is depleted at this point is it a likely prospect that they will be able to seize Calais well it's a different task entirely besieging a city than fighting a battle there are other English troops in the field. Sir Hugh Hastings, a, a reliable Edwardian commander, has been around the towns of Flanders, whipping up support and besieging French-held towns in that area. There are more troops to be joined up with there. There are English troops in, in the south. There is the possibility of shipping more English troops over from England. That being said, Calais is, is, a, is not obviously a sitting duck. It has enormously high walls, a complete set of enormously high walls. It has a series of other fortifications, including a castle that's built into the city walls, including a fortress on a little spit of land overlooking the harbour known as the Risbank. It has a double set of moats outside its walls, which are fed by the sea. And outside those moats, again, is an enormous expanse of marshland on which it's going to be extremely difficult uh, to do very much except kind of sink up to your knees in mud. So this is not necessarily, if you scan all the towns of northern France, not necessarily the most promising candidate for a siege. That being said, it offers enormous strategic value. I may be reading the history slightly backwards here, but, but let's do that anyway. It promises enormous commercial advantage if it can be taken because some of the most prosperous merchant towns in the whole of England lie on the southeast coast. The sink ports, Dover, Rye, um, Winchelsea, and so on. And Calais being very, very close to them offers the possibility of owning both sides of commerce across the shortest and most navigable point of the English Channel. So it's it's an attractive target, but it's going to be, I think, everybody realises on the immediate approach, an extremely difficult one to take. And thinking about the experiences of the soldiers, because of course Wolves of Winter continues to follow this band of mercenaries known as the Essex Dogs, how do they feel at the prospect of war dragging on? Now we're, we're segueing seamlessly from the historical into the fictional, but that's, that's absolutely fine. In the novel that I've written about the Siege of Calais, I've tried to represent what I think is, is a a typical ordinary soldier's perspective, and that's represented by my characters, the Essex Dogs, and they feel rather bedraggled and hard done by, and that's based on on what we know of the condition of the English army after the Battle of Crecy. They'd been on the road, sleeping rough, effectively, for two months nearly. There was disease. There was only intermittent, decent supplies of food. There'd just been quite a big battle and preceding that a lot of skirmishing so uh, morale I think among the English was not at its highest that being said they had just emerged victorious from a battle which they feel good about so mixed feelings is what I try to represent at the outset of the novel the the reflection that a hard campaign has offered up a moment of success but balanced against that the thought that 
many more months in the field are not necessarily going to get more pleasant, but only less, particularly with winter coming. And continuing to dwell on the fiction then, you introduced a whole host of new characters in this book. And one that I was particularly intrigued by was this fearless female Flemish warrior. Can you tell us a bit about her and whether she is based on any characters from the historical record? Oh, this is a character called Hersent, whose name is borrowed directly from the late Middle Ages. It comes from the stories of Reynard the Fox, and Hersent is a, a character from those stories. I wanted to offer a number of different perspectives from new characters I was bringing into this story. I wanted to try and get into the history of warfare a, a variety of female perspectives. So I wanted a, a kind of super hardcore female character who would offer also a Flemish perspective and who part of the theme of the book is exploring what I would loosely term the medieval underworld. And I wanted to get into the sort of the really seamy side of what a siege camp might look like, because the English, when they arrive outside Calais, build a gigantic wooden siege town known as Villeneuve-la-Hardy, the bold new town. And I tried to extrapolate from a, a chronicle of Jean Froissart, which contains a description of that siege town, the, the sort of the grubbier corners of it. And so this character, Hersent, leads us into those grubby corners via experience as a brothel keeper uh, gained in, it's implied by the story, gained in towns of Flanders and perhaps in Paris. There's another character who appears relatively fleetingly, who's an innkeeper at a pub called the Tin Jar, which is a real pub where the pirates of, of Sangat and Calais based themselves around the time of the siege. And he's forever muttering the names of other really, really disreputable establishments that he's visited across Flanders and France. And most of those are real places that I've, I've pulled from various different sources. Uh, Fat Margot's was supposed to be the roughest pub in Paris at this time. So he's, he's, he goes on a bit about Fat Margot's. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
So circling back to her sense character, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about the fact that she is Flemish and to take this opportunity to move back into looking at the history. For context, what role did the Flemish play in this campaign? It's all very interrelated. The part of the backstory to the campaign that is, you know, the Cressy Calais campaign is Edward III's long history of involvement with the towns of Flanders. And he's not unique by any means in the great run of Plantagenet kings in this respect. If, if you go back several generations to King John and Richard the Lionheart, both of them had a strategy for dealing with their own Philip of France, in this case Philip Augustus, that involved maintaining good relationships, and that could mean friendly personal relationships, good diplomatic ties, or just straightforward bribes with the various towns and lordships of Flanders because of the, that strategic position right by northwest France and the, and the wealth and the commercial prosperity of those towns. There's, there's a long history up to Edward III's reign of close commercial ties between England and Flanders because the, the way things had worked for, for quite a long time in the Middle Ages was that wool, which was England's biggest export, would be exported in raw form in wool sacks to the towns of Flanders where it would be manufactured into cloth and the English were the best at producing the wool and the, the Flemish were really good at making the cloth and so that was the bedrock of close commercial relationships although not the only commercial relation between those towns. Edward III prior to the Cressy campaign had been really in the weeds with the politics of Flanders. There'd been a, a long and bloody sequence of events in Ghent in particular, which was a town that Edward was trying to woo, uh, where Edward had backed a faction led by a guy called Jan van Artevelt, who had sort of become a kind of autocratic mercantile leader of Ghent. But two years prior to the, the events of Essex Dogs and Wolves of Winter, had been murdered by a mob in his own city because it was suspected that he was becoming effectively a Trojan horse for undue English influence that Edward wished to put his son, Edward of Woodstock, we know him as the Black Prince, in charge of Flanders, either as a duke or as a new ruler of Ghent in some capacity. Added on to all of that is the fact that the Count of Flanders had fought on the French side at the Battle of Cressy, his young son, about the same age as the Black Prince, uh, had come into Edward's possession, effectively, and Edward was trying to marry young Louis, become Louis II, Count of Flanders, to his daughter Isabel. So there's a, a long-running sort of diplomatic, financial relationship between English and the Flemish. And in a sense, the question of whether Flanders will become firmly allied with the English crown or firmly aligned allied with the French crown and brackets thereby absorbed into the Kingdom of France is one of the big questions of the Hundred Years' War. You know, the Hundred Years' War is a, is a very, very complicated conflict. Again, readers who know the, the Middle Ages reasonably well will be aware that this year Jonathan Sumption, the greatest scholar of the Hundred Years' War, published his fifth and final volume in his history, and it's taken him 43 years to make sense of this conflict and about 5,000 pages. So there are many, many different aspects of the war, and one of them is this, this tussle over Flanders, if you like. And now I'd like to come on to the siege of Calais itself, because you've mentioned earlier in the conversation that the town has formidable defences with high walls and moats. How do the English go about trying to crack the city? Well, 
as we mentioned, I mean, Calais' defences were formidable. You had this double set of moats, you've got very high walls, you've got the sea, you've got the marshland. I mean, this is a difficult nut to crack. There are some attempts to scale the walls in a, a kind of traditional tactic of siegecraft, but the walls are very, very difficult to scale, and that it doesn't look like... I mean, from early on, it seems obvious that this is not going to be the way to get into Calais. Really, the, the main tactic... I mean, there are guns, uh, and cannon had been used, primitive cannon had been used on the battlefield at Crecy, probably slash possibly for the first time in Western warfare, but they're not at this stage the sort of firearms that are able to blast through the walls of a city. You know, it, it's not until we get to Henry V's time, really, at the beginning of the 15th century, that guns are really an, a, a properly effective tool of siegecraft. So the, the tactic is really the oldest one, which is blockade. Blockade by road, which means preventing anybody from bringing supplies into Calais by the roads. But that's that's fairly easy because causeways through the marshland outside Calais are relatively easy to seal up. This English siege town, Villeneuve-Lardy, we've talked about, is well placed to obstruct anyone trying to enter Calais by land. The problem is the sea. Calais is a port town, obviously. Uh, it has a, a protected harbour, sheltered by a spit of land called the Risbank, on which there's a little fortress. Uh, the English don't hold that fortress until quite late in the siege. But more seriously than that, they don't quite have the naval capacity to fully blockade the port itself. They have naval dominance in the Channel, that's for sure. The Battle of Schloiss, a few years earlier, the English had done serious damage to the French fleet, the French had been contracting with Genoa to provide galleys to support their military efforts, but the Genoese, early in the siege of Calais, decide that they've had quite enough for, for one campaign and go home. There's probably some dispute over, over payment. But the English don't quite have the, the ships to block the port. And the primary role in running the attempted English blockade throughout the siege falls to a gang of pirates led by a man called Jean Maron, who runs a gang out of a pub called the Tin Jar in Sangat. And Jean Maron runs a very sophisticated supply operation going into and out of Calais. So he's taking food, he's taking weapons. There may well be people being moved in and out of Calais as well. We have records at Dieppe, for example, which is somewhat further down the coast where ships are being loaded up by the stevedores mainly women of, of Dieppe are loading up the ships there and then pulling them hauling them out to sea with ropes you know getting down into the the sunken mud to pull the ships out so there is a supply operation going on and the English don't have the capacity to block it until really the spring of 1347 so it's only around April 1347 that they managed to completely stop supplies to Calais. And at that point, and only at that point, an end to the siege is in sight. And before we come on to the end, what is it like for those trapped inside the city? Not nice. Uh, no, no, not nice at any point, I, I, I think it's fair to say. There are the privations of being stopped from going in and out of your city. That lack of freedom is something I suppose many of us can empathise with, given events in our own time, recent years. There is an increasing lack of food, unreliability of the food supply. There's the dangers of sporadic bombardment. Once we get to the point where the English blockade is properly enforced, things start to go very badly and they become very unpleasant. There are a couple of attempts to reduce the number of hungry mouths within Calais and people are expelled 
from the city and on probably two occasions, perhaps more, but we know of two occasions uh, on which they're expelled and there are varying reports about how those people are treated. Some reports say that Edward III treats the citizens who are expelled from Calais as, as useless mouths. Gracefully, he gives them some money, he lets them through his lines, but there are other reports that say that he actually treats them quite coldly and callously. It's hard to reconcile. Perhaps both are true. But for those who are left within the city, the most famous description of conditions comes from Jean de Vienne, one of the commanders of the city's garrison and defence, who writes a letter very late on in the siege to Philip VI. Citizens of Calais understandably have been waiting a very, very long time for Philip VI, the King of France, to raise an army and come to their rescue, but he doesn't seem to have either the will or the capacity to do so. Right at the end of the siege, Philip does bring an army up within sight of the English siege positions outside Calais. And a letter is written to Philip VI, which is smuggled out in the handle of an axe by a swimmer, by someone who tries to get out of the city and, and get this message out. It's intercepted by the English and then sent on to the French. And then it, Jean de Vienne says, you've, and I paraphrase, you really do have to come and help us. Uh, he says, we've eaten the rats, we've eaten the dogs, we've eaten the horses, we're still hungry. Very soon, there won't be anything to eat unless we eat the flesh of men. You know, cannibalism is, is really soon going to be their only option. And when Philip VI receives this message, he thinks about it a little while, but decides he doesn't have the capacity to drive the English away. There's too many of them by this point. There are perhaps 30,000 English outside Calais. They're too well dug in. The marshes are too difficult to fight upon. He makes some attempts to break down resistance, to break down fortress positions outside the Calais siege camp, but realises that he's unlikely to be able to achieve it and is probably, if he, if he brings the English to battle, going to suffer another defeat, possibly even on the scale of that he suffered the previous year at Crecy, and that might well have been the end to his, uh, to his kingship. So he goes, and at that point there is no hope for the citizens of Calais. They only have the option of surrender. And what happens during the surrender? There are some parleys between English delegations and delegations from Calais. There is an attempt, obviously, on the part of the citizens of Calais to extract terms for their surrender. They find the English rather unsympathetic to that. Edward III himself is in a very bad mood because he's been kept outside Calais for longer than he expected or wanted, and he's in no mood to offer generous terms to the citizens. The most famous vignette from the Siege of Calais is that which was captured in sculpture form by August Rodin in the 19th century. And it depicts the six burghers of Calais, so six of the wealthy merchants who are still within the city, uh, emerging from Calais uh, with nooses around their necks. They've been instructed to do this by Edward III. He says, come out and I'll talk to you, but you better come out with nooses around your necks, ready to die, because that might, that might well be one of the things that's going to happen to you. So they come out with nooses around their necks, the keys to the city, and they plead for mercy for the city. And Edward III, still furious, so one of the Chronicle accounts says... He's not going to show them mercy and he's going to have them all strung up and they're going to take the city anyway. His pregnant wife, Queen Philippa, goes down on her knees, supposedly, and begs him for mercy. Says, you really, you know, this is not the, the right way to behave. Come on, my lord, give them, you know, they've suffered enough. Uh, let them go. And then Edward III relents. Now, there's a, a question as to whether this is as it seems. And Edward III really does change his mind when he has his heart softened by his pregnant wife. It's my suspicion that there's an element of stage management to this and that this is a, a calculated show of magnanimity on behalf of the English king. It doesn't really matter in the end because that's more or less what happens. 
the city gives up, the lives of the burghers are spared, the people are basically expelled, and there's subsequently, in the months that follow, a carving up of Calais, its businesses, its properties. The king gets a lot of the good ones, the queen gets a lot of the good ones, and merchants who have been helpful towards Edward in financing his campaign to this point are allowed to move in and, and take their pick as well. There are repeated demands sent to England for colonists, effectively, to come over and occupy Calais and turn this into a proper outpost of England on the French coast, which is indeed what it becomes, because from 1347, the early autumn of 1347, when Calais falls, until 1558, right at the end of Mary I, Mary Tudor's reign, Calais is an English city. And more than that, it's an English city that has outposts of fortresses sprawling out around it. And it's your first port, literally your first port of call for merchants, for diplomatic missions. If we think about the famous, well, in Richard II's reign, the great negotiation of peace between the English and the French, between Richard II and Charles VI, takes place just outside Calais. The English come to Calais and ride out to Ardres, where there's a great sort of meeting point, festival point organised. The same thing happens much more famously in 1520 with the Field of Cloth of Gold. Henry VIII meets Francis I, and they wrestle and they have, you know, their, all their sort of jolly japes and celebrate their newfound alliance. The, the port of the sort of English base, English HQ, on both of those occasions is Calais. And Calais remains important during the Wars of the Roses. Calais is a Yorkist stronghold. The captaincy of Calais is often awarded to the most reliable, the most effective English commanders. It takes a strong hand to govern Calais. It's also a lucrative position. So Calais is a really, really, really important part of England. And it's lost in, in 1558 in Mary's reign. And it's said that on her deathbed, Mary is still lamenting the loss of Calais, whose name, she says, will be written forever on her heart. That was historian and author Dan Jones. Wolves of Winter, his second novel and the newest instalment of the Essex Dogs trilogy, is on sale now, published by Bloomsbury. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. 